Father, speak to us, O Lord, in the proclamation of your word this morning. And Father, let us speak to you in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to your glory, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I'm going to ask you to turn, of all places this morning, to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 12. And you're saying, but pastor, we left off in chapter 8. We still have the rest of chapter 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. But this morning, I want to take you to chapter 12 for a reason of my own. There's a method to my madness, if you will. So turn to chapter 12, actually the end, the end of chapter 11, because uh, Paul leads into chapter 12 with this wonderful praise to God, 11.33 to 12.2. And so Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of his wisdom and knowledge, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. O Father, in Jesus' name, unlock for us today the deep secrets of your word. Reveal them to us in our hearts that we might live by them and walk by them. And let the Holy Spirit of Christ walk with us, we pray in his name. Amen. And so Paul comes to the end of this great doctrinal treatise. Eleven chapters of doctrine. We might call it, if it was a secular work, we might say, well, he's given us the theory. And now in the end, he's going to give us the practice. Or as we like to say in Puritan circles, he's given us the doctrine and now he's giving us the application. So we learn the reasons behind the things that we do, but we still have to do them. And so he praises God for this. Oh, depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's praising God for all of the teaching he has just taught the church. He's seeing the depth of it. How unsearchable are his judgments. Friends, all the searching in the world cannot let you know the things of God. They have to be revealed. His ways are past finding out. The wise men of the world can't know the things of God unless God reveals it to them. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Friends, there's nothing we can give to God. And if we do, we can't expect to be repaid for it. But God graciously blesses us anyway, as though we are being paid. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. The silliest thing I can think of in academia today, and I went to a Catholic college, was studying the word of God as a secular subject. What could be more empty than that? I studied the Old Testament. I studied the New Testament. And there wasn't one inkling of faith in all of it. And I wasn't saved in those days either. And this is why. 
Because the depths of the knowledge of God aren't known to the wise men of this world. They're known only to the people God chooses to reveal it to. And he chose you. At least the Apostle Paul takes that for granted with the Romans. He keeps telling them that you were chosen, you were justified, you're dead to sin and alive to God. He says, you, you, you to them. The depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. How past finding out. For all things are through him, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Calvin comments on these verses. He said, this exhortation teaches us that until men really apprehend how much they owe to the mercy of God, they will never with a right feeling worship him, nor be effectually stimulated to fear and to obey him. Friends, this is the Apostles Paul the Apostle Paul's triumphant, triumphant close to the doctrinal section of the epistle. He's now in the application. He spent the whole of the first 11 chapters meticulously teaching the truths of God's word. Friends, don't ever get tired of the doctrine. It does get meticulous. But it's basic that we know it, and we know it before we try to act upon it. We are those friends. We're Christians on purpose, not by accident. We're Christians because we already know what God wants us to do. That's why we do it. We don't just fall into it. Maybe it would be a good idea to worship him. Let's try that. That's not what we do. So we're amazed at the depth of the word, the efficacy of the promises, the greatness of his love, the depth of his mercies, and the expectations he has for his people. The riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God are past finding out, yet he revealed them to us. The meaning and power of his judgments are said to be unsearchable. There's nothing that we may teach him. Anything you want to apprise the Lord of that maybe you think he forgot or didn't quite state properly in his word. Everything, every blessing, every mercy, every piece of wisdom or bit of understanding that we may attain pertaining to God will be by divine revelation only. The only things we know about God are what he reveals about himself. God's greatest mercy to man is that he made himself known to him. We think of all the things we pray about, and God's so gracious to do them. But the greatest miracle is already done. He revealed himself to you. I always wonder, what do, Christ, what do non-Christians do in a hard place in life? Where do they, don't you ever think of that? I see everybody going, yeah, yeah, I wonder that too. What do you do when a loved one's dying or someone's sick or the world's going to war? What do you do in all these times? What do you do when you're depressed? What do you do when you're at your wit's end in life? Who do you go to? What does the world do? We have a God that has opened himself, invited us into the throne room of grace that you might come and expect to receive it, he said. So we don't find him out by studying. I've tried that. Natural man might as well give up studying on the Lord. The only way to receive from the Lord, fall on your knees before him, recognize him as God, and ask him to fill your heart with wisdom. That's what Solomon did, worked out okay for him too. Natural man, that's people that are born, that's everyone. With his carnal mind, his fleshy, unspiritual thoughts... Try to come near to God through study, but they cannot. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, the natural man does not receive the things of the, spiritual, of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because the carnal mind is enmity, enmity against God. 
for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The natural man has no facility in and of himself to understand godly wisdom. He can't do it. It has to be unlocked. Friends, I've tried it. I studied the word of God without faith for years and never had an inkling of understanding of it until God unlocked it one day. Pastor Ken used to say, until he pokes a hole in your head and lets the light in. That's how Ken would say things. Human initiative does not disclose divine prerogative. Human wisdom cannot touch God. It will not unveil him. It cannot explain him. Human philosophy does not approach God. All these things are useless to unveil his majesty to us. Only by his gracious offer to reveal himself may he be known to us. And he's done so only by his word. And for our sake, for our salvation, friends, for our sanctification, and for our ultimate glorification, he's commissioned men to hear from him. And he's determined that what they hear, they shall write in a book. You know, literacy, when you think about it, literacy is an awesome thing. It's a gift of God. Not every culture in the world is literate, you know. Not every culture has a written language that knows how to write down their language and pass it down to future generations. Not every culture in the world knew that. And the ones that didn't have it and now do is because Christian missionaries told them of the importance of it. The written word of God is an awesome gift given to man that reveals the mind and heart of God. And in it, the spirit can work through it to enlighten the natural mind of man to see the wisdom of it. It is not just a book like any other book. It is not just the basis of all Western literature. I was an English major in college. We always learned the Bible is the basis of Western literature. It is all of that. It is all of that. But that's not the glory of it. The glory of it is it really speaks from on high to us down low. He commanded this very thing to John when he said to John, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. You know, did you ever notice the Apostle John is the big one that talks about writing? You go to 1 John chapter 5 and he's, he talks about these things I've written down so that you may know. And at the end of the uh, Gospel of John, I think it's chapter 21, he says something to the effect that I wrote these down so that you would know them. But if I had time or if the world could contain all the books that would be written, I would write everything about the Lord, but I can't. I'm restricted by time. But there's so much to say about God. He said all the books written in the world could not contain it. John was big on this writing mandate. So the written word of God's the unveiling of the very mind and heart of God. And note what God said to him on Patmos. He said, write these things down and send them to the churches. John wrote, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. No editorials. You don't get to add to what God teaches. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. Take away from this book, and I'll take away your name from that book from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. I have to tell you, I tend to think that's literal, don't you? Don't you think someday the judge of the world will open the book and say, Kasiri, 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 um, you're not here. <laughs> Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, when he says that, it won't be this Kasiri. I can guarantee you that. Be one of my distant relatives. Calvin again said, and this is the main difference between the gospel and philosophy. For though the philosophers speak excellently 
and with great judgment on the subject of morals. Yet whatever excellency shines forth in their precepts, it is, as it were, a beautiful superstructure without a foundation. And then he says, for by omitting principles, they offer a mutilated doctrine like a body without a head. That's all of human philosophy apart from the word of God. A body without a head. Frenzy, give us the doctrine first. That's the foundation. And we build on it. A philosopher has to grasp at things. He has to guess at things or assess in some finite human way what's right or wrong with the world. Most people will tell you that morals are known by common sense. Have you looked around? Morals are common sense. When a society is devoid of moral sense, common sense becomes far less moral and far less common. I don't think there is any common sense anymore. I think it's just sense. Some people have it and some don't. If it was common, common means everyone has it. People don't have good sense anymore. Friends, common sense tells us to abort our nation's children by the millions. Common sense, well, it's, I'm not ready yet. It's common sense. Apart from a divine moral compass, convenience is the new morality. That's all it's about. What did Francis Schaeffer said? He reduced, he reduced the world's uh, twin concerns, he called them, that we would uh, personal peace and affluence. Those are the chief concerns of mankind, and he warns the church, don't let them become your goals. Personal peace and affluence. Just leave me alone in my wealth and let me go on with my life. Let me live a comfortable life. Morality is known by its usefulness to man or to human society. It's merely a utilitarian instrument. You know what I mean by that? It's, it's useful. It's utilitarian. It's practical. It's useful. It's a utilitarian instrument for what they believe will produce successful civil civilizations, though history has produced no lasting evidence of success. Where are all these successful civilizations? Where are the great civilizations? They're in ruins. With every conjecture or contrivance, they, the philosophers of the world, must guess as to its ultimate source and authority. See, that's the thing. The world has no knowledge of and therefore no respect of ultimate authority. They have to yield to the notion that right and wrong are human constructions. Christianity doesn't have that restriction. When the ultimate has spoken, the truth is known. It is written, says the Lord. You know, you ever notice the prophets went around and they said, it is written, and then they would quote from another prophet. Or the, even uh, John the Baptist said, it is written. And Jesus came out and said, it is written, but I say to you, when the Lord himself showed up, he didn't need to say it was written. It was said, it was therefore true. His speech is light. His will is perfect. His purpose is inviolable. That's why when he spoke to children, he said, children, obey your parents. Why? Because it's a good idea. It's not what he said. It's a nice thing to do. Honoring your mother and father is good. It's worked well for some people. He didn't say that. He said, children, obey your parents because it's right. Why is it right? Because I just said it, and I'm God. I'm the ultimate authority. The Almighty does not wander into such subjective neighborhoods as good suggestions and good ideas. Obey, for it is right, he said. The philosopher has no such authority. And because he knows he doesn't have it, he refuses to recognize it. All to his own demise. But the apostle celebrates authority, as we do. He revels in it. 
It's his precious ornament around his neck, as Solomon wrote. Oh, the depth of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, the apostle celebrates it. But the man of God can never stop at the threshold of doctrine. Friends, when you've learned all the truths about God's word, that's only half the battle. Knowing's only half. It's half the mandate. It's half the glory. A truth truly known is a truth lived. To know is knowledge conceived. To walk is knowledge fulfilled. Lloyd-Jones criticizes the formalist. You know who the formalist is? He's the guy that has all the right ideas, all the right things to do, but has no heart for God. He says, but my dear friend, the question is, how are you living? It's not good to be a great theologian if you you deny it all by your behavior. If you're rude to your wife or children or to your next-door neighbor, you are a denier of the gospel. And all your knowledge is of no value, he said. The whole person is involved in the new birth. He goes on to give several reasons, and his fourth reason is this. The fourth reason for continuing to study the rest of Romans is the intimate connection between doctrine and practice, belief and behavior. We know what the truth is. How do I live by it? How do I apply it in my life? How do I teach it to my children and require that they walk by it? Well, he's saying the first way you teach is you model it. So where would be our prize if all we did was study doctrine? Doctrine is theory, and theory without practice is dead doctrine. Truth apart from action is truth denied. Be doers of the word, James wrote, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. A faith that has no power to prompt action is a dead faith. James knew it. Paul knew it. And so where does the believer go first after believing? What's the first thing we do when we have all this doctrine? When we recognize the majesty of God. When we realize there is a God on high who sent his son, who left his spirit behind to empower me to think his thoughts after him. Where do I go now with all this knowledge? That's the question that's implied here. There is but one thing that men do. And every other purpose under heaven will yield to that first directive. He must worship God. When God showed up on the scene in the life of Moses, Moses fell on his feet. He saw the bush. He said, I must go forth and see this great sight. And he went forth. And the Lord said, this is holy ground. Take off your sandals. So when we approach God, which is what worship is all about, it's about approaching God. We have to come in a way that God has designed for us to come. Remember when Isaiah came into contact with God? He fell on his knees and he said, Depart from me. I'm an unclean man and I have unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He knew he was undeserving. As soon as he was in the presence of purity, he knew he was impure. All he could do was worship and beg for mercy. There's only one right response to faith in Christ, to worship him. Remember when Peter came to Cornelius and Cornelius fell on his knees and he said, on your feet, Cornelius, I am a mere man, but the God I worship you may fall before, right? For what's the chief end of man, the great confession asks, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you know God, friends, you will worship God. Don't try to be a Christian without the church. God made the church the orderly organization to nurture the lives of young Christians. It's where the word is spoken. It's where the gifts are deposited. It's where you will fellowship with like-minded people. If you know God, you'll worship him. And if you love him, you'll worship him in a way that's acceptable to him. 
Friends, the two great rules, you must believe what Jesus believes, and you must love who Jesus loves, and Jesus loves the church. And I feel sorry for the place that the church has taken in much evangelical preaching today. It's sort of a presented as a, almost a necessary evil or an unnecessary good. No, the church is central. God died for the church. He, lay, he gave his life for her, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. So if you know God, you worship him. If you love him, you'll worship him in a way that's acceptable to him, and it starts by honoring the Sabbath, another commandment. Why? Because it is right. You know, when you're an authority, you don't have to give reasons. You can just say, because I said so. I know that's a fact because my father said it to me my whole life, and I said it to my children. First do what I say, and then I might, if I feel like it, explain why, but for now, enough is that I said it, and that's how God is. And men are made in the image of God, and that's a good thing. And it gives masculine power back to the earth, which is quite devoid of that in these days. We are quite a feminized society today. Nobody rejoices anymore in their manhood. They apologize for it. God will not be approached with accessories. Don't come with graven images. Say, I'm worshiping this thing as though it were you, Lord. Don't come with statues or paintings or props or lighted candles or boring, repetitive prayers. God says, don't be like them. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Useless repetition, he calls it. I call it the rosary. Repetitive prayers. Prayers to dead saints. Friends, we don't pray to dead believers. We pray to a living God. And if they're believers, they're not really dead, but they're not God either. He'll not receive the artifices or intentions of man as though they're his own principles. If there's any application to the first 11 chapters of this epistle, it's that we ought to worship God in a way that's acceptable to him. He said to the woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. In other words, your worship is useless and it's mindless. We know what we worship. Salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. And then Paul gives us this thunderbolt. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. So we're called to worship him in spirit and truth, but... Here in Romans, he said, come, worship me in spirit and truth, but don't forget to be, bring your bodies. The Lord of all creation will have us be bodily present before him. Your body is what Paul is saying is a living sacrifice. He saved our sinful souls, and he'll glorify our mortal bodies. Friends, when we're joined again with Christ at the last day, your body will be risen up and fixed and given back to you. God doesn't hate the material world. It's not evil in and of itself. It fell. The kingdom of the world fell because the king of the world fell. Adam was given dominion over the world. He was the king. Acceptable worship to God is designed by God. It's commanded by God. And we can see that the first major directive, the essential application of knowledge, is that we make a bodily presentation of ourselves before him. How did men answer God in the Old Testament? You ever notice? God said, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am, <laughs> right? How many times does that happen? God calls on someone, they say, here I am, Lord. In other words, I'm present, present and accounted for. 
You must worship with your body. You can worship on Zoom if you like, but I hardly believe you can call it a living sacrifice. It's kind of a dead sacrifice. You know, I've had my problems with technology over the years. Now, obviously, it's a good thing. I'm glad we have it, but I'm like 50-50 with technology. And do you know, years ago, I said something. This disturbed, disturbed a lot of Christians, and I, and I expected to disturb some of you today with it. But I refuse to pray with anything that's recorded. I won't pray with a preacher on tape. I'll listen to the sermon, and then when he's praying, because it's recorded, I, I don't do that. That is not a living soul breathing a prayer to God. That is a mechanical device that's mouthing words that aren't from a real being. I have a problem with that. I don't pray with recordings. You think that's weird? I never pray a recorded prayer. It's got to be a real God-breathed prayer from a bodily present person. It's got to be live, in other words. I hardly believe you can convince the Lord that worshiping on Zoom can be described as a living sacrifice. I guess you could say, well, cable bill's really high. It's a big sacrifice to have the Word of God come into my house on Zoom. But I believe we have to be present before the Lord. I think that's what this is saying. You've learned all this stuff. Now get before the Lord and show him that you're there ready and accounted for. Be counted as one of the holy congregation of God's people. And if it's not easy, friends, it's not always easy to come. You know, last year at this time, it was December 12th. It was a Sunday. And that morning, I had a little accident around the house about 4.30 in the morning. And I dislocated my shoulder and broke my left ankle. Remember? See, almost a year ago. And it was 4.30 on a Sunday morning. And I'm sitting there on the edge of the bed going, how can I go? I don't know how I'm going to make it. And who am I going to call? Who's going to fill in when I call him at 7 o'clock? Because I won't call at 4.30. I was here that day. The boys had to carry me up those stairs, but I did that for a reason. I did that to be an example of, yeah, sometimes... It's not easy. Sometimes it's inconvenient. But the Lord says, be present before me. And in the pastor's case, I think it was a double responsibility. If it's not easy, friends, if it becomes cumbersome, all the better. Then you'll know the meaning of living sacrifice. It wasn't easy to get here today. The ancients presented dead sacrifice, but Christ died once for all. He rose from the dead and brought us with him. We present living sacrifices, not dead ones. Those are an abomination to God. Those are fulfilled. Or have you forgotten the doctrine that said, reckon yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord? And then once again, he talks about presenting yourself. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive. Present means show up. You're alive from the dead, and your members are instruments And don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to God. You know, I know we think of worship as spiritual, and it is. It's primarily spiritual. But God, unlike the ancient and modern Gnostics, who believed all matter was evil, including your body, does not despise the body. God doesn't despise our bodies. You know, your natural instincts are not in and of themselves evil. They were created to be good. It's sin and temptation that draws them to evil. Now, before we get to the essential part of the verse, that is our reasonable service, we should look into some of the language that brings us to that point. First is the apostle's plea. He said, I beseech you. Isn't that interesting that he said, I beseech you? I look at the context in here, and I know he means I'm commanding you. He he says, but I beseech you. And it's only for brethren. 
He's, this promise, this beseeching is only for the brethren. It's only for the people that already have spiritual access to God. And so the plea we should note is not really a plea, it's a demand. Though the apostle beseeches, we dare not say no. Do we dare say no? That would be like the believer who lets the elements of communion pass by. You know, I've always been against that. If you're a believer, you're not under the law. I know you've been in a bad mood, or maybe you said something nasty, or maybe you sinned on the way to church. But that doesn't nullify who you are. When the, you know, I think the ancients knew more about this than we did, because when the king invites you to something, you can't say no. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, not do this in remembrance of yourself. He was there with his body. He said, this is my body, and that's your body. Put this into your body. It's a bodily presence. When you do such things, you deny yourself the first and most essential right of the person whom God justified, as though having been justified by God, you may be in need of further justification. Friends, if you're a saint, you partake of communion. It's that simple. And if you're in sin, confess your sin. And get right before God. Leave your gift at the altar. Make yourself right with your brother. But don't let the communion pass by as though we're sort of a he loves me, he loves me not type of Christian. You know, you can't do anything to make God love you less. You can't do anything to make God love you more. God loves you how it pleases him. And he always did. Before you even knew he loved you, he loved you. When you do not come to the altar of worship of the one true God, you're denying him. You put yourself again under the law that God declared that you're dead to. Worship is a spiritual exercise, but do not discount the body in the practice of worship. Jesus didn't. He said, this is my body. He said, this is my blood. Friends, both your body and your soul are part of the new man. And the creator of both demands the presence of both when he's being honored. Now let's look into this living sacrifice thing. We know your body's living, but how is it a sacrifice? Sacrifice has to do with resisting desires. That's what a sacrifice is, right? It has to do with ignoring our needs. That's what a sacrifice is. You know, people go on hunger strikes and things like that to make a point. They're sacrificing, right? I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm bored, I'm depressed. Who hasn't said that on a Sunday morning? Friends, I've told you... And I mean this, you don't have to come here Sunday morning and put a face on for me, a little happy face. I'm a joyful Christian for me. I know that we have our trials. And by the way, I put on that face for you, but I don't always feel that way. I think maybe as the pastor, I should at least seem to come purposeful and enjoy. It's a living sacrifice. We're denying certain things. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm bored. I'm depressed. Friends, I got to tell you, I can't tell you how many Thursday evenings... I didn't feel like filling my house with people and teaching the Word of God. But I'm going to tell you, I never had a time, I never had a time when it didn't exhilarate me and bring me back. I've done it so tired and at times depressed and came out of the other end joyful and full of life. The Word of God can do that. And God likes to bless when He knows we've sacrificed. we got to do the hard thing, not just the easy thing. I'll gladly endure any of them for the hour of worship. I'll come hungry. I'll come tired. I'll come depressed. Because there's an element of sacrifice in the rigors of daily life, in the temptations to do other things, in the disappointments of the moment. He didn't call us to present our bodies as models of comfort and joy. He said living sacrifices. To bring a dead sacrifice is an abomination 
It's to put Christ to an open shame. To present yourself a living sacrifice is the core and kernel of genuine worship. It's the first thing we do when we become believers. He writes that your body, which is your presentation before him, your sacrifice must be holy. That is acceptable to God. Nothing comes rightly before God without first being consecrated. That's set apart for holy use. You've been set apart. You're called. You've been cleansed, which is justified. And you've been invited, which means you'll be received. And yet there's an aspect of invitation that I'm quite certain that the ancients knew more about than we do. And I've alluded to it already. You see, when the king invites you, it's an insult to have something better to do. When the king invites you, it's an insult to have something better to do. And in the ancient world, it was a deadly insult. If the, friends, the king asks once. Kings aren't big on repeating themselves. He expects compliance. Jesus taught this very thing. Remember the parable. A certain man gave a great supper. He invited many, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. Sound familiar? The master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Notice the master of the house is not just full of joy that you've made your excuses. He's angry, right? Go out into the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, or as I like to say, the blind and the crippled and the crazy. And the servant did so, and he said, he came back and he said, Master, there's still more room. And the master said to the servant, go out in the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those who were invited shall taste my supper. King asks once. He expects compliance. Now let's get to this reasonable service thing. Once again, I have to say, reasonable service is an unfortunate translation. Now, in my notes that I seem to have lost this morning, I had all the other translations of how it's translated. Sometimes it says spiritual service. Sometimes it says reasonable worship. Sometimes it says spiritual worship. It's technically correct, but modern use of language renders it difficult to understand. The Greek will make it clear to us. Reasonable in the Greek is the word logikos. Sound familiar? It sounds like logical, right? Or logos, the word, right? So in my old Bible, not this one, two Bibles ago, I keep it on my desk. It, it's not fit for public uh, eyes to be laid upon it. It's all falling apart. The pages are coming out. But I go to Romans chapter 12, and under reasonable service, it says logikos latria. I wrote it right in there many years ago because I wanted to remember that it doesn't mean what reasonable service normally means to us. So the lexicon calls reasonable logikos, and here's the, here's the definition. Pertaining to the reasoning faculty, reasonable, rational, is used in Romans 12.1. The sacrifice is to be intelligent, in contrast to those offered by ritual and compulsion. The presentation is to be in accordance with the spiritual intelligence of those who are new creatures in Christ and are mindful of the mercies of God. So what does reasonable mean? It means intelligent. It means using your intellectual faculty. So reason, reason, which in our vernacular means, what does reasonable mean to us? It means fair. Oh, be reasonable, we'll say to someone, right? That doesn't mean be thoughtful to us. Be reasonable means be fair, be sensible, be appropriate, be moderate. In our verse, reasonable means by the power and use of reason. You're being reasonable because you're using your mental faculty 
you're exercising reason. It refers to mindfulness or thinking or intelligence. Keep this in mind and consider the word for service. Service in our verse is the Greek word latria, and the word means of the service of God in connection with the tabernacle. In other words, service here means worship service. Again, it has an emphasis different from the way we normally use it. How do we usually use the word service? It means to help someone, be of service, giving assistance. And so if we took the vernacular and said reasonable service, we would think it means do moderately good works. Give some reasonable service in your life. That is nothing what it means. That's why I say it's an unfortunate translation. The Amplified Bible, I think, had the best translation of the ones I I looked into. So the phrase has a completely different meaning. Reasonable means intelligent, and service means worship, as in worship service. The call of the apostle is to offer our bodies and our minds toward the end of intelligent worship. In other words, make your bodies present and use your thoughtfulness, the doctrine I've already taught you, to make your offering right before God. We don't worship by accident. We worship on purpose. Lloyd-Jones wrote, the first great motive for Christian living is intellectual. It begins with the mind. Christians do not merely live according to their feelings and impulses. They're governed by their understanding of truth. They know who they are, and they realize that they must behave accordingly. Friends, we could hardly worship in spirit and truth without engaging our minds to doctrinal instruction and employing our bodies to act accordingly. This is Paul's great incitement to worship with the whole spirit and the whole body, and the epistle carries with it the model for all biblical instructions. It begins in the mind with right doctrine, and it ends with an application for right living before God. But there's more to worship than just body and mind. We offer our reasonable service, which is our intelligent worship, but we also offer our inner man, our heart and emotions. There is a wonderful little verse from the book of Acts, friends, which speaks of the worship practices of the early church. Very simple, not very formalistic, right? Not a lot of rituals and things. And so Luke wrote of the early disciples, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayers. Those are the aspects of worship. We've covered the doctrinal aspect of worship. We spoke of the bodily presence, and so our minds and bodies are to be engaged now in the act of worshiping God. But note that the apostle writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Friends, clearly, this is an appeal to the heart. Where he might have demanded, he rather beseeched. He could have demanded. There's other places in the New Testament when he said, I could demand you with the authority of an apostle, but I'm beseeching you. An elder does not lord it over the brethren. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 says that. But rather he beseeches them to compliance with all the aspects of Christian life and worship. And the passage from Acts goes on to speak of fellowship. Further in the passage, we read of the joy of the new converts. And that's the first 3,000 converts. It says, continuing continuing rather daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There's this inherent gladness present in the worship of God and the fellowship of God's people. When you employ mind and body in the right way, God adds the blessing that it's like excites the heart. 
That's why he said to the Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. So what does worship include? It includes prayer. It includes fellowship. It includes the breaking of bread, which refers to sacrament and singing, preaching and teaching with thanksgiving. These are the elements of true worship. Do all these things with great care and diligence, friends, because darker times may be on the horizon and the church needs to be exercised in the practice of worship before God, right worship. Historically, when times got dark, the church didn't meet less, they met more. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as has become the habit of son of some, but gather more and more as you see the day approaching, he said. I don't see the world getting better for believers. There's no New Testament statement that our efforts will usher in a great age of true worship of the one true God, but we have our mandate. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, all those things are contained in the preaching, and do it with long-suffering and teaching. Why? Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's why. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Fulfill your ministry. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you, Father, for drawing us together rightfully before you with our whole bodies, mind, and spirit this morning, that we might say our service before you was in worship to you, O Lord. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ as your blessed church. Amen.